the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the mess, the tense, the gray, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, the stuff that doesn't tie up nicely with the bow. It's not usually like a Hallmark movie, because life is not typically like a Hallmark movie, which means that we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. Plus, the show is podcasted. You're welcome. You can find it on any platform that you like. And uh, we would love to hear from you. And uh, as is usually the case when we begin the show, uh, we have mess to get into. We do. Stuff that is uh, a little bit sometimes over our heads. Could we first acknowledge that you're just pounding coffee because you're exhausted? Yeah, I have six cups (laughs) right in front of me of of various blends and grind. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's real bad. One of the fun things of this show is that Ian's child will always be the same age basically of the show, but... That's true. I didn't you, think about that. Those of you who've been around here for uh, the first five or six weeks, you know that Ian has uh, got a newborn at home, and uh, you're feeling it today. Let's put it that way. I'm yeah. going to bring the energy today, baby. Yeah, please do. <laughs> if you just hear me snoring, snoring. just keep plowing through, man. I'm, I'm going to put a blanket on you over there, and I'll just take over. <laughs> we'll play some nursery music. Ian, and it's uh, time to go. It's time to go. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks, uh, for, thanks well, for carrying the weight of it. Well, like you said, there's the, the, the hard story over the last couple of days uh, there's been two of them in the church world, right? The Harvest Bible Chapel stuff yeah. just keeps getting crazier as now James McDonald's sons have resigned, yep. and that keeps unraveling. But also, uh, last week there was the issue, of that article that came out uh, about the Southern Baptist Convention right. and just the, the the reporting that was done of the years and the years of hiding sexual abuse. 20 years, right? 700 victims, 20 years, and they said that that could just be the tip of the iceberg. And you and I talked about that not too long ago, how we as Protestants, we like to rip on the Catholic Church for all of their problems, but that this is kind of coming home here with the Southern Baptist Convention. And just a really hard story and a really sad story. We would encourage you to read about it. You could do so uh, all over the Internet right now. Uh, But J.D. Greer, uh, who is just becoming the president of, uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, yep. and cards on the table, I'm a big J.D. Greer fan, right? right. Like he's uh, not just as young, but he's, he's a church planting guy out of Raleigh, North Carolina. He's very kingdom-minded. Like I think he's a great selection for this, but he just kind of walked into it here, right? Yeah, he's no just kidding. starting. Jeez. Uh, and J.D. Greer, uh, he came out really hard yesterday. And I just want to read some of the things he said and get right. your response because – I'm not – I'm going to be the first one to say that I'm – and you are not qualified to make – be like, yeah, they're handling this perfectly. Who sure. knows, yeah, right? Sure. I, all I'm going to say is I'm impressed by the by his first shot at this. Okay. But, but what he said. So 
President uh, J.D. Greer, he said on Monday evening he called for a season of lament, sorrow, and repentance over a sexual abuse crisis. And here's what's amazing that he did. He provided a list of 10 churches uh, that he said should be scrutinized for their handling of sexual abuses and potentially removed from the nation's largest Baptist group. Amongst those, two of the other 10 churches are in Houston, one of them being Second Baptist Church. You might know that is pastored by a former Southern Baptist Convention president, Ed Young, Uh, 60,000-member congregation, Uh, Brentwood Baptist Church in Houston, Sovereign Grace in Louisville. These are some big dogs. Uh, And he said this. J.D. Greer said this, brothers and sisters, there is a problem. This is not a fabricated story made up by people with a secular agenda. We've not taken reports of abuse in our churches as seriously as our gospel demands. And sometimes even worse, we've outright ignored or silenced victims. It's time we back up our words with action. And Mm -hmm. later he stressed that every option is on the table. So they have a ton of work to do. Neither of us are Baptist or in the Baptist church. Right. Uh, they have a ton of work to do. But I just wanted to highlight it to say I'm praying that that the words that were spoken yesterday turn into actions in the coming months and coming years. Yeah, and I think um, him coming out of the gate swinging like this uh, sends an important message. It does. Um, and the thing that as I'm reading this story that does – uh, bug me a little bit because it, it quotes Greer and then uh, and then later it quotes uh, a Tom Rainer, CEO of SBC's publishing arm, Lifeway, yep. um, is that at least what's represented here, um, no one seems to be using the word sin. Mm. We talk, we say problem. Interesting. We say mistake, which I obviously agree with, but I, may, maybe this particular issue and topic has me fired up, like recently becoming a father myself. May, maybe I'm showing my cards just even emotionally in that regard. But I'm like, where are the people standing up saying, no, it's not just a systemic problem. No, it's not just a organizational mistake. Mm. It's straight up sin, and we have to talk about it as such. Yeah. Because as long as we keep it in the in the arena of, oh, these are some things that need to be tweaked, even if they're like aggressive tweaks, I think as long as they remain in the area of like, oh, deficiencies in our organization. You're like, no, 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 no. What we're talking about over 20 years, 700 victims, those aren't mistakes that's not just a problem that's outright sin yeah. and that doesn't one doesn't nullify the other necessarily but i think i would i would just love to see maybe an elevating of the rhetoric that like yeah. hey we know that this isn't just like oh man we need maybe more eyes on people's emails to keep that no, yeah. no 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 this yeah. is way that's darker way more pervasive than maybe that i'm hearing most people talk yep. about it right you now. and i talked last week about it not not dealing with the fruit right like let's check emails let's do this but the root problem what is causing that sin i think that's a very valid and fair point. I just like the fact that they've come out swinging. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, easy words are easier than action. So they've right. got their work in front of them because so often we've seen, <laughs> I, I feel like it's been heightened for us because now we do a radio show. So we have to like keep up with stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's like right. weekly pick your church scandal that I we're going to talk about. Right. Oh, and it's really hard. And we're not talking about small churches. We're talking everything from harvest to Southern Baptist convention to totally. the Pope and the Catholic church. Totally. And, and so often those stories are, um, defined by hiding and posturing 
in holding up the powerful and not the victim. Yeah. And so at least here I hear them saying words like we have to listen to the victims. You wish they had for the last 20 years. Yeah, right. And I like also hearing things like a season of lament, a season of sorrow, a season of repentance. I hear them saying we want to do some self-reflection and say how do we get here. Yep. But your point is exactly right. Like they've got to really dig out what are the roots that are causing this totally. sin. Totally. Uh, or what is the sin? What is it causing? And they've got to really dig that out. They've got more pain ahead of them. Yeah. I just feel like the words that Greer and others are using are different than what I heard from the elders at Harvest or, you know, the Catholic Church or whatever. So I'm at least hopeful. And, you know, I'm a guy. I don't feel this. Mm. I, I feel this through the pain of the of the people who have been hurt. Um, but but I at least am prayerful to say, OK, hopefully they can get this right. And and there's not a follow up story 10 years from now right, right. of uh, how the Southern Baptist Convention didn't change. And right. Hopefully. So I'm hopeful. Hopefully we can be praying for them. And if you're in the Baptist church, holding your pastors and the leadership above that, uh, holding their feet to the fire. All right, I got two things I want to say then. One, you just said, I'm a guy, so I don't feel this as much. Yep. You think that being a, a man makes you makes this story resonate with you less just simply because you're... Your gender is that? Talk to me a no, little more about why you think that is. That's a good point. I don't think I re- it resonates less, or I feel any worse about it. I just often hear from women who are like, "Well, this is the problem that I felt. This is where I felt uncomfortable. This is how hmm. you know the the men in power, you know, approached me." And, and it's just I don't. It's not my. Um, it, I don't. It's not my uh, story. Yeah. Right? Okay. And so I feel bad. It's not like I'm like, oh, this isn't a big deal. This is a huge deal. Right. Sometimes I, you know, it's probably helpful. So my, I guess what I'm hoping is that the Southern Baptist Convention is bringing a lot of women to the table yeah. to have this conversation. If this is a lot of middle to upper aged men having this conversation, then they're probably still going to have problems. Well, and that's what we said last time we talked about this is yep. maybe maybe it's uh, an appropriate time for some of the men in these positions of power to to be quiet for a second, yep. to listen to stories, to listen to victims like I think I said it yesterday, right? The the safety of the vulnerable will always be more important yes. than the reputation of the powerful. And I think that inversion, and maybe I'd, off, I'd offer this caution, because whether it's this or it's harvest, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for the church, mm-hmm. pray for the leaders. And I would say, yes, do that. Also, we need to be praying for the victims, the yeah. people who have been harmed in many cases horrifically. Yeah. It's just interesting to me how often the imbalance is, um, oh, yeah, pray for, pray for the church. And I'm, I'm not saying don't. Please hear that. Like, absolutely, yes, pray for the church. Yep. But how quickly we forget to, like, yeah, there, there's also, like, a wake of damage left behind yes. that often, because it's in past tense, we, like, we fail to to keep that uh, energy and keep that focus. Like, yeah, we also need to be praying for and lifting them up as well. Like, that's that, a, that's got to be absolutely central, I think. a valid point. We start to worry. We go immediately to organization, yes, institution, right. all the way up. In, we do this in government, right? Totally. Like, all the way up. And uh, that's a very good point. Like, be praying for those— uh, the tip of the iceberg, the 700 victims over 20 years yes, yes. whose lives were rocked by this. And that, like they said, that's, there's a lot more to come out of this. So uh, I bring that up to say I'm hopeful for the words they said. We've all heard hollow words before, so I'm hopeful these aren't hollow words. Yep. And uh, same, But same. I, I appreciate you saying, hey, uh, maybe pray for the victims before praying for yes. the organization. Yes. That's, a good, that's, a good, uh, that's a good word. Totally. Well, coming up next, very special guest, Sean Mendez is in the studio, <laughs> and uh, you're not going to want to miss that. That's coming up next on The Common Good right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, show all about diving into the gray, the mess, the tents, the ball of yarn that is our lives. Ball of yarn, nice. <laughs> I 
that's just sort of the imagery that came to my mind. That, you know, do you ever feel like sometimes you read books and then everything's like laid out in real yeah. like linear fashion, and then you look at your life and you're like, my life doesn't look anything like that. <laughs> just a cat, jacket, <laughs> right, 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 right. Not a new ball of yarn. No, no, this is like a decades old ball of yarn. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or uh, at 1160hope.com. But Brian, you, you were telling me I think yesterday about a situation with your family, you're driving yeah. along that kind of shook you up a little bit. Would you uh, explain a little bit yeah, of that? Yeah. So you know, I've I've said multiple times i've got a daughter in high school and a son in fifth grade a daughter in fourth grade and so i'm learning a lot of like pop culture like right. through them right uh and so i remember around new year's there's this big song and you joked before the break that sean mendez is in here like that'd be awesome but <laughs> uh but there's this really popular sean mendez song and i remember i was watching like um you know like a disney christmas parade or maybe it was a new year's thing with my kids hmm. And he's playing, and people are singing along and bouncing. It's like the most poppy song, like right. total pop. And the lyrics are so dark. <laughs> oh, man. And I was like, it really shook me up because yeah. I'm like, we have all these young kids singing this song, and he's up there smiling. And then when you start unpacking these words, and I apologize in advance because we're going to play some of this song, it will stick in your brain for oh, yeah, days. For sure. And so I thought it'd be fun. Let's, you know, we all want to be DJs, right? Let's roll this. Let's play <laughs> the song for just a little bit. And then I just want people to hear how dark it is. And maybe you and I can, <laughs> I don't even know what I'm asking of us to go. <laughs> As parents, as pastors, yeah. what do we do in our pop culture when this is the message? Sure. So why don't we go ahead and play a little bit of that song? Help me. It's like the walls are caving in. Sometimes I feel like giving up, but I just can't. It isn't in my blood. Laying on the bathroom floor, feeling nothing. I'm overwhelmed and insecure. Give me something. I could take to ease my mind slowly Just have a drink and you'll feel better Just take her home and you'll feel better Keep telling me that it gets better Does it ever Okay, well, I'm just going to spend the rest of the show crying now. I know. That's, what but the this, heck? But my point is that this song is like top, or it was this summer, like top of the charts, if we kept playing that song, it gets really catchy and really. But did you once you like hone in right. on the words? This is a kid like crying out. Yeah, like give like literally when the words are help me, it's like the walls are caving in. Mm. Sometimes I feel like giving up. No medicine is strong enough. Like mm. and and like it's a little. And you've talked about music often, right? You yeah. went through punk, through all this stuff, but this is like pop music. Yeah, right. And just. And the fact that this is not this is what's resonating with kids my kids' age. Yep. With, I don't know, man. It freaked me out as a parent. Like, oh my goodness! Like this is. And I'm sure we had our songs, right? You posted today about Nirvana, right? That's so right. I was like Teen Spirit. That's right. It, it's cyclical, but it's. I don't know. It shook me up when I finally actually listened to the songs. Mm. When I stopped bouncing in the you know in the driver's seat when I'm driving my kids around, I'm like, wow, this this kid is like crying out for yeah. help and the message of the song is basically like i want to give up but it's not in my blood so i'm not going to do it and i was mm. like oh buddy <laughs> like oh buddy so i don't know you know that song did you hear it what what, what are your I, you thoughts know, on it i have heard it and uh, i think there's probably a couple of lessons here we could, we've talked about it a little bit my introduction to music was like classic rock you know uh beatles the who zeppelin that kind of stuff and then and then i like discovered nirvana that yep. was my kind of entrance into playing music the post that i shared 
today was I about like this it. kid walking by my house and throwing me a cassette and saying, like, learn track two, we're playing in the town show. Because <laughs> Kurt Cobain's birthday is today, he would have been 52. Oh. And, um, and so that kind, of, that kind of began my journey of playing music, which led to a, a long stretch of, like, uh, punk rock. And, and the thing about punk is, you know, it's really anti-establishment, you know, at its core. And then, all, and then along comes, like, pop punk. And there were a couple of bands that I would listen to, sometimes just for the music, because it was, like, really positive sounding yep. and then you you know this is like pre-google you'd like get the liner notes and you're reading the lyrics of some of these songs and you're like oh my yes. goodness this is actually really really dark and dark. i think part of the lesson there is regardless of the genre because this isn't just sean mendez or no. just punk rock or just no. it is sort of some of the genius of nirvana is that they're packaged through and through what was like grunge it was brooding yep. it was like it was just that was their brand but i think there's messages that sometimes i can't believe how old this makes me sound <laughs> But stuff that we're like consuming all the time yeah. that we're not actually really mindful of the messages they convey. And I remember being a kid being like, I don't listen to the lyrics. I'm just listening to the beat, mom. Like, you know, like yeah. realizing now how wise my parents were to say, hey. And they gave us a lot of leash to listen and experiment with music and styles. But like, hey, pay attention to the messaging behind this song, behind this whatever that is. And that, you know, may- maybe we can even apply that sometimes to worship music. Like, yes. So I just sounds worshipy. But like, is anyone actually scrutinizing yep, the, 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 the lyrical content? Actually, right, the lyrics are actually heretical. Or right, right. I right. mean, he just sings. He right. Just have a drink. You'll feel better. Take her home. You'll feel better. Keep telling me it gets better. Does it ever? And wow. like that. There's, and the reason I bring this up is I just think that this is not just the cry of that generation. It's a cry of everybody in our mm, world. Like, yeah. please, like life could be hard. It's painful. Is it? And, and you know, open up pastorally. Like we have the answer to this. It, like as mm. Christ followers. We believe we've got the answer to this. And, uh, you know, people are, you know, from young kids who are singing this to to older people who grew up in Nirvana, whatever. Well, I just said older people who grew up in Nirvana. (laughs) You and I. Uh, Touche. People are hurting. People are looking for the answer to that question. Keep telling me it gets better. Does it ever? Yep. And his answer to it is like, hey, I'm just going to be strong and not give in to it. Right. That's not the answer. Um, and sometimes I think we forget, and this, for me, this song was a real wake up call because my kids are listening to it, uh, to be like, wow, okay. Like, no, this, this conversation matters. We've got to be stepping into this void that people are feeling, whatever the age, uh, and offering the hope of Christ. That's what I think art is when it's at its finest is doing. It's pulling back the veil a little bit. It's why people resonate with songs. It's pointing at the song saying, yeah, yeah, that's how I feel. I didn't know how to say that. I didn't know how to articulate yes. that. And it's like, you know, we've we've talked a little bit before. You know, I'm a part of this thing called Beer and Hymns, and we uh, sing these old hymns and we drink craft beer together. And it's amazing that people in their 90s, all the way down to their 20s, will show up to these events and both ends of the spectrum be moved to tears because there's something that these songs resonate, regardless yes. of how, your age, your demographic. Like, like paying attention. I think as pastors, paying attention to the things that are resonating in culture yes. is so important. And I think far too often the tendency is just bury your head in the sand. Like, don't listen to this music or this station or this author. Like, uh, man, if people are resonating, I think a, a good pastoral move, a good Christian move is to say, why? What is the thing about this? Yep. Why is this resonating? And how and how can we be a part of helping bring health yep. and healing? And to step in and, and we're, you know, we often are trying to shield each other, our other Christians, and shield our kids from everything. But yeah, maybe right. instead stepping into the things that are part of their generation that talk about and just be like, hey, let me, let me talk to you about this. Yep. Well, coming up next, uh, a teacher cut off all of her hair, and uh, her reason for doing so, I think, is really going to make you smile. Awesome. And that's coming up next on The Common Good right here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the stuff, not only the mess and the gray, but also the stuff that we have in common. Let's lean in and have a conversation rather than shy away and just keep throwing rocks back and forth at each other. We'd love to interact with you whatever way you want to. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, also 1160hope.com. Uh, but I mentioned, Brian, that there's a story that I came across that uh, I think is going to warm your heart, but I think there's some really important implications to this story as yeah. well. Um, let, me just, let me just read some of it for you here. It says, when Shannon Grimm noticed that a five-year-old girl in her kindergarten class was really sad and depressed at school because friends think she looks like a boy, mm. she wanted to cheer the student up by showing solidarity. Classmates were teasing the girl, Priscilla, uh, who had begun wearing a hat to school to cover her hair, according to CNN. I would cry because I would think that school was not fun, the girl told the affiliate. Mm. So uh, Grin chopped off her waist-length hair uh, and into a pixie cut in solidarity with this awesome. little girl. And uh, if you could see the cover story, it's got a video, but it's the teacher and this little girl, both with these short haircuts. And, um, I mean, I'm not a hairstylist, nor do I have a lot of commentary to offer in that particular vein, but just the embodiment of someone in authority seeing someone in pain and not just saying, hey, my thoughts and prayers are with you, uh, right? Or not just saying, hey, I hope that gets better for you. Or not just saying, uh, suck it up, mm-hmm. um, deal with it. That's just how people like to say, I'm going to actually f- like alter my physical appearance uh, in order to show you that I see you, that I care about you. Yeah. Like, I, does that sound like someone that you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. Vaguely oh familiar. man, I just love, I love the the core of a, a story like that. It's fascinating to me too, because regardless of your faith background or how you voted or whatever, there, there's something like innate in us that hears stories like that and thinks. Yeah. Yeah, we need more of that in the world. Yes. More people acting like that. It's why know? we call them feel-good stories, right? We're right. Like, oh, totally. There's something really nice about that. And uh, man, your kids get older. One of the hardest things is as your kids get into elementary school and junior high and all that, and other kids can be mean. Mm. And you're just like, oh, and your heart breaks for them. And so to know that a teacher stepped in and was like, uh, you know what? I'm going to, uh, I'm going to step in here in such a way that makes. That kind of pops the balloon for this girl and yeah, relieves right. the strength, the tension. And this teacher was very honest in this story. Uh, she said, I miss my long hair. Right. When I debuted my new haircut, her son told her she looked like a boy. Mm. Walking into the grocery store or other public places with her new do made her feel self-conscious. Like, this mm. wasn't an easy thing where she's like, whatever, I'll do this for right, right, Like, there, right. Was some, there was some personal capital that she gave to this um, that was hard for her. But she said, I don't want my students to ever feel like their confidence is down, that they don't want to come to school because the way people look at them and say things to them, I want them to come to school and love being in school. Yep. Like I, at the very uh, surface of this, I want to say this is what I want my kids to have in a teacher. No kidding. Right? Like in, in my kids, I, we've had certain teachers where uh, they just go the extra mile and they love yep. on my kids. And those are the kids you – those are the teachers you remember. Those are the ones that your kids love. Um, but, yeah, to bring it more pastorally, you know, this – this teacher could have said to this girl, hey, uh, you know, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names right. will never hurt you. You'll right. be fine. Or just don't listen to them or just don't do this. Uh, instead, she said, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to step into your pain and I'm going to make this help make this better. Yeah. Uh, what a wonderful picture of community. What a wonderful picture of the church. Like you said, what a wonderful picture of Jesus. Well, and that's it's we talked about this before. I think this uh, ancient Jewish practice of Shiva, right? The idea that when somebody in your community is grieving that you don't jump to platitudes and sanctimony. You you first jump to entering into the pain with them, that you sit in silence and grieve. And I think 
that's something so difficult for us to do first off to not like offer a proof text Bible verse or some like, you know, ray of sunshine, silver lining, which if you've ever been in a season of grief, you know, that those things aren't all that helpful anyway. Yes. You know, like people, you can give people the benefit of the doubt. Like I'm sure they were trying their best, but I think sometimes when other people grieve, it's really hard for us to like know what to say. We feel awkward about their pain. And this idea of like entering into is something I care so deeply about, but I'm realizing the older I get, how hard that is to do. Like when I was 20 or 21, you know, I would do, I would do sleep outs and I would spend time on the streets because it was like really like I just felt like God had given me a heart for the homeless. And it was really easy for me to just take a weekend and say, I'm just going to go sleep at Cabrini Green. Like I'm just going to I could just do it um, and not freak out like a wife and kids. And, got, wow. you know, I it, there was it was I was a little less tethered, I guess, in that regard. And yeah. I'm I'm realizing the older that I get, how hard it is to enter into the pain, both at a macro and a micro level. How, how do I when my close friends are grieving? Uh, enter into it without sort of giving them a proverbial pat on the back and like God, God's got plans for you, or it's going to be okay. Yep. Or, you know, even yep. some of the stuff that I realize I do today, like you're not alone. We're praying for you. None of those are bad things, yeah, but no. one of the things that this teacher embodies here is that she she entered into it in a really unique way, and then also experienced her own discomfort. I think that's so key to the story that it wasn't like, well, because I'm an adult, yes. I don't care what people think. She's like, no, I I realized that I can be as self-conscious as this little girl. And I think that realization like led to even greater compassion. Like you were saying, man, kids can be brutal to each other sometimes. And I don't know, man, the invitation of entering into people's pain, um, both as, as pastors, as people, as friends, I'm curious why you think that's so hard to do. Like why, why is it so difficult for us to like truly enter in and why, why do we jump right to, you know, platitude and sanctimony? It makes us feel better to have the answers, right? Like, mm. you- sitting in silence is so uncomfortable, especially if the other person's hurting. Yeah. That it becomes almost more about me wanting to feel better about myself, giving you answers. Right, right. And just being your friend or being someone who's there with you. I remember uh, we all have our pain stories. I remember uh, my wife and I, we had um, between our first child and our second child, we had multiple miscarriages. Mm. And I can remember that was the first time I ever experienced people trying to comfort me Mm. and my wife. And some people did it really poorly. Yeah, I'm sure. They said things like, uh, when you have your next child, you will forget about this. Wow. And you're just like, I, that is not helpful at this moment. But I realized that that made them feel better. Wow. Uh, the best thing that anybody ever said to us was, uh, I think it was my brother. I think he called and said, hey, man, I literally don't know what to say to you. Wow. But I'm really sorry. Wow. And I remember feeling like, oh. That's what I needed to hear right now. Of all the things, all the advice you got, that was the thing that, that like, that's what I needed to hear. Wow. Like, hey, uh, this stinks. I don't have an answer. Uh, I love you. I'm here for you. Sorry. Wow. <laughs> like, and, and, but yet that's really hard, especially as pastors. We're paid to have the answers. Or so we think. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so we go into situations and, you know, someone's in a hospital room and they look to us. Sometimes it doesn't feel like enough to just open up your Bible and read them scripture. Totally. That sounds really bad to even verbalize that. Right. But we feel like we should be able to go in there and be like, you know, God works all things out for the good. Right, right, right. Which all of those are true, even though we take them out of context. God's still here. God's present. He's near to the brokenhearted. These are all true, but sometimes it comes across as really shallow. Yeah. As opposed to like, hey, I'm here. I'm going to sit here with you, uh, pray with you, and whatever you need. Uh, and so it's really hard. It's I think the short answer to what you asked before is 
uh, it makes us feel better to be able to give some answers to people. But but to get out from under that and realize that sometimes the best thing to do is just say, I have no idea why this is happening to exactly. you. Like I think even in my own life, some of the most healing moments have been when friends just held me and we both just cried. Not a Absolutely. single encouraging word was uttered. Yep. There was no like bumper sticker phraseology that was taking any of that pain away. It was just, I'm with you. Yes. This is horrible and we're not going anywhere. Yep, I'm present. You can count on me. If you need to talk, I'll talk. If you need to just sit and cry, I'll sit. Man. Uh, but, you know, it's that's so hard to do. Even right. just saying that, I'm like, when's the last time I just sat and cried with someone? Totally. A long totally. Time. What a challenge, though, man. What an encouragement to, yep. to have our eyes open for opportunities, the not cut- to prescribe something to go away, but to actually be present with people in their pain. Yep. Well, coming up next, we uh, I'm going to share a story that's going to make my parents real happy. The headline <laughs> the headline reads, homeschooling is the smartest way to teach kids in the 21st century. I think this is going to be a fascinating discussion here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome to The Common Good, friends. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about Diving into the gray, the mess, but also the stuff that we have in common. And hopefully, I always skip the good part. Hopefully bringing some good to the world, right? Yeah. In an age of people yelling back and forth at each other, want to create space. But hopefully you're bringing some good into the world. Come and on, what I we pictured do. people dancing to that song, that intro right there. You think so? We got Sean Mendez in their head from earlier in the show. If like, you're driving, happy though, show today. please keep your hands on the wheel while you dance. <laughs> that's, that's all I ask. You can uh, find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, also 1160hope.com. In fact, stories like this one uh, will link on the Facebook page yes. if you want to read a little further. But uh, this headline obviously caught my attention. If you're unaware, uh, I was homeschooled. Some of you are like, yeah, no duh. <laughs> Least surprising <laughs> yeah, news we, ever. We've heard you talk, dweeb. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the story from The Independent says uh, homeschooling is the smartest way to teach kids in the 21st century. And I kind of just want to stop there and cheer. <laughs> like, I, I want my confetti cannons. I, wanna, I hope my parents are listening, that they feel vindicated and supported. Because, you know, I, when I was a kid... There was a lot less um, protections for homeschool kids. Yep. So yep. not not only w- were there speculations about the types of people that they crank out, but like I remember because I went to public school up to fifth grade. Well, and that's when, right. You went for a while and then right. got out. Yeah. And when I was pulled out, there was a there was some weird implications, and I like wasn't allowed to go to dances, and I wasn't allowed to like mm. participate in sports, and so I would I snuck into stuff. Some like I was sneaking into school. Like a real dweeb, but like <laughs> there was certainly, and I was a part of a homeschool co-op and that, that actually ended up being really helpful yeah. because he met other homeschoolers. But, um, you know, some of the stereotypes are there for a reason. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, as I've gotten older, there's been a lot of organizations that have, um, that have started to help educate homeschool families about their rights and their protections. Did you and- homeschool through high school? I did all the way through, yeah. Wow, that's usually usually you see elementary school, junior high, and right. then you go to high school. It's usually in the reverse. And yeah. I'm the oldest of seven, so not not any one of us had the exact same schooling experience. You know, a couple of them went to a charter school outside Detroit. Okay, um, so we we don't all have the exact same um, background. But I I actually really uh, looking back uh, appreciated my homeschool years m- more now as an adult because it, my parents did a great job of like teaching me to see all of life as education. Yeah. So if I like spent time with grandpa working on an engine or something like mom and dad helped me see that as like, no, that's learning. That's part of education. That's a, that's a better way to live your life to see all of this as a classroom, not just the time that you're at this building. And I yeah. think that's a little bit of what this story is kind of pointing at. It's, it's created, um, it's showing more and more people that, uh, have critical thought. We're able to engage in content, you know, in various platforms. Yeah. It's creating a more holistic type of, uh, type of student it seems. Yeah. Let me read. I think the, uh, the gold paragraph here, 
uh, and then we can respond to it. Remember, you were homeschooled. I I was not only public schooled my whole life. My parents both worked in the public school, and I have three kids in the public school right now. So, uh, for, for now, at least. Oh, no, for good. <laughs> for good. Uh, contrary to the belief that homeschooling produces antisocial outcasts, it says, the truth is that some of the most high-achieving, well-adjusted students are poring over math problems at their kitchen table, not a desk in a classroom. Uh, according to legal pedagogical research, at-home instruction may just be the most relevant, responsible, and effective way to educate children in the 21st century. Um, and I think uh, advances in technology, yeah. and like you said, I think people are doing homeschooling smarter now. Yep, agreed. Um, I feel like my pet peeve is, like I said, my kids are I'm, – I'm very pro-homeschool, and I send my kids to the pu- pu- public school because we love our public school. Right. I love the schools my kids go to. I think they're great. Um, and so I think it's it's always like this either or. Like you either – I'm either a homeschool guy or a public school guy. Well, no. For some people, homeschool is great. Yeah. My wife and I, we actually homeschool – by we, I mean she. But we actually homeschooled <laughs> our oldest daughter in the second grade, I believe it was, just for the second grade. Okay. Our, our younger two were really young. And just our personality in our house just didn't go very well. Really? By the end of it, our daughter was asking to go back to school. No kidding. <laughs> yes. And so, but there were some good things about it. Like I got it, like the flexibility mm. and all of this stuff. But uh, you know what? I The one thing I would say is what I hope that public school people don't do is like, is like it's the same thing in churches with youth groups. Like mm. don't expect other people to fully educate your children or right. to disciple your children. Right. So just because your kid's in the public school doesn't mean you – you know, passed off the burden as the, of the as the parent to right. help them see, you know, uh, everything in life is about education. Like you said, your parents did a good job at. Um, they did a great job. And the homeschool people, you know, be careful not to not to do it for the wrong reasons. Like, right. oh, the people go to public school, they're bad. That's right. bad. <laughs> right. Big bad world over right, there, right? right? Right. I think if we can understand, you know, different strokes for different folks and and be okay with that, I. Homeschooling's great. Yeah. Well, and I think for us, it was, I mean, we had a couple of things we really lucked out on. We had a, a killer youth group growing up. Yep. So that in a lot of ways kind of anchored our social circle. I found music pretty early. So mm-hmm. I was playing in bands. And so a lot of those became my outlet, my outlets, you know, and I, I often will say, oh, I was, I was kicked off the soccer team. The truth is I was not that good of a soccer player. <laughs> like, oh, they kicked me off. I would have been Pele if they hadn't kicked me off. But they it was like, have... it wasn't a bit. They would have kicked me off anyway. For the kids in the school, kicked off means they cut you. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. They broke up with me. Yeah. But I do think, though, there was something like I'm, again, the older that I get now that having kids myself, how much I appreciate my parents' posture. Toward, like even when I look at my siblings, we run the gamut politically and yep. religiously. And my parents made it a point. To really instill in us Christian values, but to also instill in us, think critically. Yes. Like, think for yourself, ask good questions, see all of life as, the po- as a possibility to engage with content, learn to listen well. And I'm not saying we do all of these things perfectly, but yep. I, I really feel like I learned a lot of that in my homeschooling context. Like, even one of the th- stories that I love to tell is that um, one of my brothers um, is pretty severely dyslexic. And my mom figured mm. out that, like, him writing with a pen— uh, was just this massive hurdle for him. And so he, he, she got this tray of sand and that when he began to feel the letters through his fingertips, that's how he was able to actually learn language. Wow. And now he's studying like his fourth language. <laughs> like it just, it just unlocked it for him. And most yeah. experts say, man, if he had just been in a classroom of 30 people, he would have been steamrolled. So like that specialized attention yep. actually changed the trajectory of his life. And so in a lot of ways, because my mom had to spend a lot of time with him, um, that meant that as the oldest, I had to kind of help teach some of the younger ones, oh, which when you're 13 or 14, 
is really annoying. But now as a 35 year old, I'm like, man, that's, that was the beginning seed of like a love for teaching. Yeah. A love for like it taught yeah. early on, like, Hey, this is what family is. Like we have each other's back. We're in this together. It's not just you take care of your stuff and be done. Like we're in this together. And again, at 13, 14, I don't think I had the wherewithal to appreciate all that was happening. But our, our homeschooling environment, and there was plenty of fights. There was plenty of blood on the carpet. There was yes. plenty of like screaming. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm not. I don't mean to paint this like euphoric picture. But man, I attribute a lot of who I am mm. now to like my parents' intentionality to make the first things first in our life. And I think yeah. a lot of that happened in the context of homeschooling. That's awesome. Uh, it does bring up for me one of the most annoying things to me, especially in the world of Facebook and Twitter and everything, is like people needing to say like the way I do it is best. Mm. Like you, everyone should homeschool. Well, no, not everybody should homeschool. Yeah. Everybody should go to the public school. Well, no, like your brother, you just told a story where it was better for him not to. Yeah, right. Like, I think people need to be okay with people making decisions for their families, obviously to a point, but not everything is like, oh, I'm the best at this. I've figured out the best way to do this with my kids and this. It's not like this whole mom shaming, especially, right? Oh, us, dads, no us, us dads don't feel it as much, but. But some do. Yeah. But this whole shaming thing about like, well, if you don't homeschool and you don't do this and you don't do this, then you're like the worst parent. No, like figure out what's best for your family. What's best for my family is putting them in the really good public school up the street. Totally. And doing good with that and then coming home and educating them throughout the rest of the day. That's a good word, man. Well, uh, coming up next, we're going to hear from Scott Saul, someone that you really appreciate uh, in particular on the rise and fall of pastors. That's coming up next on The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about Diving into the tents, the mess, the gray, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, the stuff that maybe doesn't have answers at all, that you'll hopefully hear Brian and I disagree with stuff, that we'll, uh, we'll come up short, we'll say, I don't know. Like that, for me, in a lot of ways, is where a lot of us live, and mm-hmm. we want to create a space. Our hope is for this show to be a space for us to actually dialogue about those things, to wrestle with stuff rather than being so certain that we have all the answers all the time. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, also at 1160hope.com. And uh, Brian, there's a there's a, a writer named Scott Sauls that you've a number of times said that you really appreciate, you really value his insight. And in yeah. light of Harvest and Willow and SBC, there's a uh, a blog that he posted called uh, Thoughts on the Rise and Fall of Pastors. What, what's this all about? Yeah, he said in the beginning, he said that he's posted this before. He said, unfortunately, this is the third time he's had to post this because pe- uh, pastors keep rising and falling. And uh, he, what he's trying to get at is the celebrity culture around these big pastors, and we consistently see them fall. What's going on within the church and what's going on with pastors? And the reason I bring it up, like you said, is because we're living in the, in the evangelical world here in the midst of the harvest stuff recently, yeah. the willow stuff this past summer, 
earlier in the show, we did the Southern Baptist Convention, the Catholic Church, all this stuff. So what's going on? Yeah. And Saul's does a great job addressing it from the side of the pastor and also addressing it from the side of the congregant. Mm. Uh, and so from the side of the pastor, he's like, listen, a lot of us are just power hungry. Mm. Like we we love the adulation. We, we love that people look to us for answers. We don't admit when we're struggling. So mm. Saul's – one thing I love about Saul's is he is really open about his own anxiety and depression. Wow. So he'll say – I. Regularly at night, I wake up with a pit in my stomach and pace my room for two hours. I'm reading this going, he's multi-thousand people in his church. He right. was the second in command, like me uh, air quoting there. <laughs> he was like basically the assistant pastor for Tim Keller in New York. Like wow. in the celebrity pastor world, Scott Sauls is climbing yeah. that ladder. Right. And he's saying like we as pastors from a pastor end, we don't feel like we have the ability to be honest about our struggles. So mm. we just put up this facade and we're chasing power and adulation of people. And he's basically saying this is a stew that's going to lead to bad things. Yeah. Well, and I think this quote here that he has right in the second paragraph uh, from Andy Stanley. And Andy Stanley feels like at this point, it feels like America's pastor. I yes. don't know. I don't know why people of all shapes and sizes just seem to really resonate with him and his style and his approach. And so when, when he says stuff like this to me, it really uh, it really stands out. Um, he said that every pastor is just a few poorly spoken words yes. or just one reckless decision or, when innocent, one carefully crafted smear campaign away from losing his, and I would add, or her ministry. Mm. And, like, I don't – that doesn't, like, cause me fear in so much as it causes me sadness. Like, I know that that's real, and I know that particularly in Chicagoland, we're having to sort of face this reality constantly, it seems – but that idea that, like, yeah, that that is that is a true reality, and that to ignore that, you know, and I think we've seen a number of people who have been removed from leadership who, turns out, thought they were untouchable. Yep, like thought that they were quite too big, you know, too big to fail. Yep. That their infrastructure had protected protected them so much, and I think we're seeing kind of the ushering in of a new era that says, like, no, you, you're, none of you, none yeah. of us, I can't say you, we're pastors. Yep, none yep. of us are above, nor should we be, uh, accountability, transparency, Absolutely. and it. It pains me to even have to say these things. That feels, you know what I mean? Like to even have to say like, ah, in leadership, accountability and transparency should be something that we value, that we care about. And I think what we're seeing is um, pastors who often are communicators, Mm -hmm. for better or for worse, can be really good at spinning a narrative or convincing a people group that something is reality when in fact it's not. And I think that can be a dangerous combination if you're power hungry, uh, running from accountability, but possess the ability to like, you know, get people on your side, your, your, you know, high woo on the strengths finders. Like that can be a really dangerous pairing. And I think we're seeing more and more of these charismatic, high entrepreneurial, high hierarchical pastors who are, who are losing everything because their head just got way too big. Yeah. And then on the flip side, what, what allows people, pastors like that to thrive uh, is uh, I would call it the congregation's misguided, um, almost, uh, fan um, obsession with celebrity, yeah, and uh, thinking that our church must survive, and this pastor, who's the face of our church, must survive, regardless of the things we see going on in their lives, and and so it's like this double-edged sword where where pastors want this pedestal, mm. and when they're really dynamic and talented and stuff like that, churches put them on this pedestal, right, right, and they it's just a it's a cyclical thing of feeding the beast. And I'm hopeful that out of the wreck of Willow and Harvest and all of this stuff, 
that that there's going to be kind of this new awakening, this reformation, if you will, within the evangelical world that yeah. says, no, this is what we want in our pastor. We yeah. want him to be a shepherd. We want there to be some authenticity about, and not this celebrity. Um, I am doubtful that that's actually going to happen, sadly. Mm. I hope I'm wrong. Mm. Um, but but I think that's where people, if you're in a church and you feel like it's an environment in which the pastor, like you use the phrase, is too big to fail, yeah. and that there's this pedestal and this celebrity and they're untouchable, I think that's dangerous. Yeah. And that's not what a pastor is called to be. And so I think I think there's... Um, you know, I think there's blame on both ends. The yeah. pastors who are want the pedestal and the churches that put them on a pedestal, I think that is a recipe for destruction. Yeah, I would say I think the blame is on both sides, but not equal blame. Sure. I'm I'm, I'm going to come after harder those in authority who perpetuate cultures Agreed. that um, allow celebrity culture to continue. Because I do often hear pastors like, oh, what what am I supposed to? They put me on this pedestal. No, nah, man, like <laughs> if, if you're at the helm, you're leading the ship, whatever that is. Like proactively say, I'm going to stand against the stream of this culture because I know where, I know where this leads. Like I think, you know, Spurgeon told a, a group of ministry students once, if you could be happy doing anything other than ministry, do that. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a little bit of a warning, right? Like yes. ministry is hard, so that's not. I'm not letting pastors off the hook, but I'm also not saying I'll just get over it. Like I, I really, and we've talked about this at length. Like ministry is really hard, and there's parts of the job that people will not likely ever really fully know unless they've been it themselves. But I'm a little tired of pastors sort of. Saying like, oh, it's just naive to the culture of the church that I built or the thing that I'm at the head of. Like, ah, man, maybe, maybe be a little more proactive yes. then at like identifying the things in your culture that are perpetuating patterns and systems that ultimately keep you safe and in charge. Because ultimately, and, these big pastors and we're pastors of, as a pastor, big church, small church, whatever church, you're the number one. Um, influencer in creating the culture. Yeah. So if you're like, well, how did this culture get like? Well, you probably made it that way. Yeah. <laughs> you probably made it that way. And so I think if you're or a pastor, you allowed it at the exactly. very least. If you're a pastor out there, you need to figure out like, why am I in it? Uh, do I have accountability in my life? Like we've all read way too many stories recently of parent of pastors committing suicide. Like that's yeah. just ridiculous. I know. Uh, but then you know, churches too. What is the what are you trying to accomplish as a church? Is it to be like the the celebrity pa- you know pastor led um, awesome big church, or yeah. is it something different? I think, I mean, I feel strongly that all that the church has been through in the last six months in the Chicagoland area yeah. uh, really needs to, hopefully I'm praying that there's fruit that comes out of it. Like we do a reimagining of what the church is supposed to be and pastors are supposed to be. Yeah, I hope we do. And I hope that reimagining leads to a revival yeah. where, where we together say, man, we're in this together and we're not the sum of some celebrity um, but ultimately, together, we are the people of God and that we can be agents of grace and mercy and beauty Amen. wherever we're at. I hope I hope that becomes the reality. Well, coming up next, we have an interview with Aubrey Sampson, who wrote a book called The Louder Song, and it's a topic that I'm really passionate about. It's about lament and how do we, uh, as a culture, as a church, as a people, uh, lament well um, in a culture and a society that loves to run to the positive mm-hmm. almost instinctually. So uh, that interview is coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the mess and the gray and the tense, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, doesn't tie up with a nice bow, because if we're honest, that's where most of us live most of the time. And we know that people love to argue. We want to create a space for people to lean in rather than retreat, to engage in a dialogue. And there's a couple of ways you can do that. 
You can find us uh, on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, also at 1160hope.com. But in the studio, right this very moment, in person. we have a very special guest. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Aubrey <laughs> Sampson. Woo-woo! <laughs> hey, guys. You just woo-wooed yourself. Right? <laughs> I did. It's turned into a dance party. I love there. it. I love it. <laughs> All right, so let me just let you guys know a bit about Aubrey. She's a gifted teacher, a writer, a church planner who offers incredible perspective in the midst of trying experiences. She tackles the subject of lament, a topic that I personally am really uh, interested in, um, in an accessible, vulnerable, and winsome way, bringing her trademark humor and wisdom to a difficult topic. As an author and promoter, she's driven, intentional, and real. She'll be an asset not only in the writing, editing process, but also in the marketing, publicity process as well. You can find more at AubreySampson.com or on Twitter at AubSamp, which I think is a really brilliant handle. Oh, I thank you. And you wrote this book called The Louder Song, which I just think the premise alone is brilliant. Would you just talk a little bit about this book, why you wrote it, your hope for the book for anyone listening? Yep. Um, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Of course. So, uh, 2015, so about three and a half years ago, my husband, Kevin and I were in this really incredible season. Um, like you said, we're church planters. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so we opened the doors to our church service and, uh, we were just celebrating all that God was doing in our lives and in our neighborhood yeah. and really exciting time. That same week, uh, my first book came came out, which is a book called Overcomer. Hmm. And so, you know, all these dreams that we had just been like praying through and the fruition of them was happening in Mm -hmm. one week. Hmm. And I woke up in the middle of that week and just uh, inexplicably couldn't walk. Oh my God. And um, at the time I was a runner, so I thought it was a running injury. Hmm. And I tried, you know, rice, the rest, (laughs) what what is it? Rest, ice, compression, elevation. Didn't work. And uh, Kevin was actually carrying me around the house for a few days. And wow. finally, um, we thought, you should go to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> you know? well, right. Um, so anyway, went to the hospital, was, was hospitalized and diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, which impacts my joints. Wow. But it just it came out of nowhere. Wow. Um, and then on top of that, in the middle of that week, we were um, grieving the loss of my cousin Cameron, who was like a childhood best friend to me. He's mm. like an uncle to my kids. Mm. Um, he was snowshoe hiking in Crater Lake National Park, Oregon, and he took a picture of the park, which if you've seen it, it's absolutely gorgeous, right. um, texted it to me and a couple other family members, and then he actually fell off the side oh my of gosh. The, um, the cliff oh my word. and died, and wow. it's been uh, three and a half, four years, and we still they still haven't found his body. Mm. Our creatures are still searching wow. for his body. So um, that was happening. And as you can imagine, we were grieving. My family was grieving. And then on top of that, Mm -hmm. our youngest son, who's doing awesome now. I like to preface that. But at the time, um, we found out he was having some struggles with his spinal cord. He had spinal cord surgery, was um, going through ongoing developmental care, physical therapy, et cetera. So anyway, Mm. that's kind of a long way of saying that it was this season of awesome celebration Mm. and this season of I don't know what's happening right yeah. now. Yeah, no kidding. And um, I've been a follower of Jesus for 30 years. Um, and I, for the first time, thought, am I praying to the ceiling fan? Yeah, right. You know, like, does God see me? Yep. Is God here? And, you know, I'm sort of this, I, again, I've been a Christian for a long time, so I sort of know hmm. in seasons like this, you're supposed to rise above and yeah. more than yeah, conquer yeah. and <laughs> do all the things Christians are supposed to do. But I just, my faith, like, melted to the ground. Yeah. 
And I didn't know how to make sense of it. And so this book, um, which I know we'll get into in a little bit, but this book is really sort of that journey and how I began to lay those things before God Mm. and eventually found him in it. Wow. Oh, that's really personal. And I'm wondering, as before we get into just the concept of lament, what was it like for you to just have to sit in that and write about your own life story? Was that cathartic or was that just reliving pain day after day? Yeah. What was the book writing process like for you in the midst of that story? Yeah, it's interesting because I wrote the book about three years after those things had initially happened. Wow. So I was able you know, to have some perspective as we all have when you can look back on life circumstances, mm-hmm. right? But um, there were certainly days when my editor would say, you're too, you're almost too hopeful now and you need to remember what it was like to feel that way. Oh, wow. And so there were days writing where I was just sobbing, wow. remembering how difficult that season was. And some of the things we're still walking through, you know, right. like grief over my cousin Cameron. It's not like we're just over that. Yep, right, my chronic right. illness, I, I am in a better place. But of course, that's still a daily fight for mm. me and, and for Kevin and I yes. as we walk through it. And so although I had the gift of having some perspective some of it was it was rehashing some really difficult stuff i'm sure so the book's about lament right and there are probably plenty of people that have no idea what lament even is even though a third of the psalms are psalms of lament we have a whole book called lamentations Mm -hmm. and so often our contemporary music doesn't reflect any of that right right? it's 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 very easy for us to jump right to easter and not want to live in like Good Friday, Holy Saturday kind of wait and tension. Like, why why do you think the church so struggles Mm. to engage deeply Mm -hmm. with the concepts of lament, even though it's pervasive throughout Scripture? Right. I think that's such a good question. Mm. I feel like it's so American, right, or it's Mm -hmm. so Western Mm. to just want to get to the triumph and get to the victory. (laughs) And we also, I think especially in Christian culture, at least in evangelical Christian culture, we want to, like, uh, learn the lesson and move on <laughs> yeah, to the right. next sort of spiritual yes. plane that we've yes. learned from it and like wrap it up in a pretty little preachable package and we can talk about it at a conference. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, um, I think it's very difficult for us to just stop mm. and to, and then we have to admit, right, that we're limited. Like, yeah. hey, th- something has happened here that I don't have a good answer for. Mm. And that's, that's hard to, to even say aloud sometimes. Yes, totally, totally. Talk to us a little bit. I was reading your book, and uh, I really enjoyed it, by the way. Oh, thank you. And uh, this, the title, Louder Song, yeah. like there, there's a story behind that, which yeah. I found fascinating. Why don't you tell our listeners this, the, just where that title came from? Yeah, I actually really love that story, so I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in the middle of this really difficult season, I was just trying to avoid my pain, pretend <laughs> yeah. like everything was okay. Right. <laughs> um, but a friend invited me to a concert. Um, and so I, I kind of needed a girl's night out or whatever. Yeah. So I said, yes, let's go. So we get to this theater, this great little theater in the round in downtown Chicago. And we sit down immediately. The lights go dim and, um, a screen descends from the ceiling in this theater and it flashed a trigger warning mm. and it started, um, to display these really disturbing images, like images of child soldiers, images of women suffering, Holy images cow. of hungry kids. And and then it got worse. Um, a choir dressed in really dark robes walked on stage and started singing this really low, slow, ancient funeral mm. dirge. Whoa. 
And so the mood in the theater, which was at first you're really excited to be there, <laughs> yeah. um, like the wind was knocked out of yeah. everyone's sails. No kidding. And I turned to my friend and I was like, I think we have to go. Like I just am. This is too much. Yeah, too much. So um, what we didn't realize is that there was actually another choir sitting in the theater disguised as audience members. And kind of out of nowhere, they stood up and they began to sing over us this triumphant, hopeful, mm. beautiful song. Wow. It's a U2 song that I write about in the book. Right. But, um, and what began to happen, which I thought was so fascinating, is the, the funeral uh, choir was still singing. The disturbing images were still being displayed, mm. but the hopeful song was growing louder and more powerful. Wow. And soon your, your focus shifted. Yeah. And I don't know what to say except to say that I'm sitting in there and I felt God say to me, Aubrey, this is what I do. Ugh. I don't need you to pretend like suffering and pain don't exist. I don't pretend like they don't exist, yeah. but I am at work singing a louder song over them. Mm. And it's a song of renewal and restoration oh, and redemption. And I mean, I just sobbed. Yeah, I just no bawled like a baby and I felt like, okay, this is the invitation for me to find God in this really dark place. Awesome. What a beautiful, I, I got goosebumps just hearing <laughs> that story. That, what an incredible story, my goodness. Yeah. Well, we're going to continue to talk with Aubrey Sampson, the author of The Louder Song, a book all about how do we grieve well, how do we enter into lament and allow it to shape us as a result. So uh, coming up next, we're, we're going to continue this conversation with Aubrey on The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good Friends. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A show all about diving into the mess and the gray in an age of echo chambers and confirmation bias. We want to lean in to the stuff that doesn't have easy answers. Sometimes, honestly, doesn't have answers at all. It's ironic that the music we're playing right now is the song I Happy. I was just going to say it. Oh, we just my word. Into lament? Yeah, what is the strategy there? It's my the goodness. It's the mess of life. It's wow. the mess That's of right. life. There Both you go. And. If you're wondering why we're laughing, we've been uh, joined by Aubrey Sampson, who wrote this brilliant new book called The Louder Song. And the, the book is really about lament. It's a topic that I think, man, we don't do a good job of talking about. And I think lament carries with it a couple of connotations, too. Some people feel like it's this old churchy word, so they kind of run from it. Other people know full well what it is and still run from it because like you were saying get me to the mountaintop yeah. like get me to victory or yep. at the very least like sermon application yeah, like help totally. help me to use this in my next talk and that is I, I think i feel the weight even of that tendency why why is lament so important both in a in a biblical context but also to you personally like how, how do we lament better and what are some maybe the pitfalls that keep us from actually really engaging with yeah th- those are some great questions um, I, you know, I think for people who don't know, lament sort of at its basic form is simply crying out to God mm-hmm. in grief or in pain. And scripturally, it's often in the form of poetry or song. Mm. Um, there's actually more lament psalms in scripture than there are praise psalms yes, in scripture, right. which I just think is fascinating. Totally. You see the majority of God's relationship with the Israelites is full of lament yeah. again and again and again. Um I think lament became important for me because I was, like most people, wanting to sort of rush to the other side of of this suffering and this grief. Mm. But I found that when I tried to do that, (laughs) it just became sort of a joke. Yeah. Mm. Um, I was avoiding. I was pretending. I was not actually experiencing real healing Mm. or real transformation or even really inviting God into all this pain. 
And so to see that uh, throughout Scripture, God not only allows us to lament to him, but actually gives us language for yes. lament, mm, yes. that was very freeing for me to realize that I could say to God all of the ugly, unfettered, unfiltered things, totally. and he wasn't going to, you know, brush me aside. He wasn't going to reject me. He actually wants, he wants our praise, of course, and our adoration, but he also wants those really broken, hard places. And so the journey of lament for me was simply a process of saying everything to God Mm. and then just sort of waiting until God showed up in it. And and I think that's a way we can walk other people through their pain is allow them to say everything they need to say. Totally. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go with this. Um, Ian and I were just talking a couple segments ago that we're not very good at when people come to us, we want to give them all the answers, yeah. right? We want yeah. to help them. Uh, someone listening right now, they've got family member, they got friends who are just in a dark spot. Yeah. Give us some advice. Give us some practical advice of, of what would be helpful in helping people or being with people who are in dark places. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. A, a friend of mine talks about how sometimes we want to balance the scales mm. so people are hurting and we want to be helpful. I mean, it's all right. very, the intentions are really totally. good. But we want to say, yeah, this horrible thing happened, but yep. right. look at yep. all the lives that are going to be changed because of it. Oh, yes. or, right. or look <laughs> at the beauty that's coming from it. And, yes. and that's, of course, a good, kind instinct. But I think the reality is when people are in the pit of despair, yeah. instead of trying to like pull them out of the pit, which only God can ultimately do, we need to climb down in the pit with them. Mm-hmm. Right. And sit with them on their morning benches for yeah. as long as it takes. Yep. And just say, you can you can scream, you can cry, you can say everything, and I'm not going to try to fix it for you. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to cry with you. Right. Um, and I feel like if we can start doing that and not be so awkward around other people's <laughs> Yeah, <meetings>, right. <laughs> right. You know, that's a real ministry to people. Yeah, totally. One, one of the things, too, that I think is really evident in Scripture is that God would rather we yell at him than walk away from him. That's right. right? Mm. And like yes. you were saying, it isn't just that God's like okay with lament. He like invites it. And I think part of the reason is because that's real. That's where we're actually at. If, if anything, like the story, the Bible's filled with stories of people who are jacked up or shaking a fist. Like, did you miss me? Did you forget me? Yeah. And so you just spoke to the people who know somebody who's in the pit of grief. Could you just spend a couple of minutes speaking, maybe even pastorally to the people who are in the pit of grief themselves? Yep. They're, yeah. they're the ones that are like, this is all fine and good. Louder song. I'm into that. <laughs> right. I, I right. don't see an end to this, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm barely yeah. hanging on. Yeah. Can you just speak to a little bit of the people that are maybe in yes. that season right now? Absolutely. I would say a couple things. First, I'll just start by saying I'm sorry for the pain that you're mm-hmm. in. Yeah. Um, I, if you're wondering if God sees you, I believe that God sees you. If you're wondering if God hears you, I believe that God hears That's you. That's right. And um, if you're wondering if God is with you, even when you can't feel him, mm. I believe that God is with you. That's right. God is mm. close to the brokenhearted, That's the right. Bible says. Um, and I would say most laments actually in the Bible begin with the word how. Mm. And so I would encourage you, if you feel like you have the strength to do it, begin to express all of your hows to God. God, how could you let this happen? Wow. God, how is this going to ever get better? God, how long will this last? And you can write those down. You can say them out loud. Get in your closet or get in your shower and just scream or, or cry. Pray those hows to God. And then if you can, surrender them to him and just wait. Mm-hmm. And it might take a long time. Right. And you may right. not ever find really good answers or solutions. But I have no doubt you'll find God's presence with you in the really tender places of your soul. Uh, so good. Mm, that's good. 
Just curious, has people? You know, I've never written a book. It's got to be. It's got to be really cool to see a book, right? With it's your name so on it. cool. <laughs> it's awesome. really awesome. It's awesome. We've yeah. touched on a lot of it, but I'm curious. What are one or two things? Someone finishes the book, they put it down. What do you hope sticks with them? Is yeah. It? Hmm. I think the biggest thing is I didn't want. I, I see a lot of my friends or my colleagues or my peers hit these really hard seasons and they walk away from God. And you yeah. just touched mm-hmm. on that, Ian. Um, but my hope and my prayer is that people feel like they're not alone, mm. that they can endure, yeah. that they won't give up, they won't walk away from Jesus, and they'll actually find some supernatural strength in the middle of the season. Not just when they get to the other side, but right in the middle of it, yep. yes. they'll find God's presence. Yes. And, awesome. of course, I hope they share it. And it with other <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I was waiting for that piece yeah. in oh, particular. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> That's funny. I'm wondering if you could maybe even, as we kind of like wrap this up, share how, how does lament like change our view or perspective of suffering. You know, like we're speaking either to people who are in the midst of it or people who are close to someone who is, but like, I know there are plenty of people who are thinking, ah, laments for the artist or it's for the oh, poets. Yeah, for the, yeah. What's the practical, what does lament actually do? Like in your opinion, what is the actual process of lament accomplish yeah. in and through us? Not just for us, but for the, the community that we call like our friends and family. Yeah. I, I think that's actually a piece of lament that we didn't really talk about, but I think there's this communal piece where mm. when we, even just pray aloud the lamentations or we pray aloud yes. lament psalms, we realize that we're sort of entering into the world of sufferers that exist. Oh, you know, it's good. not just here in America. Of course, across the globe, totally. there are people suffering persecution and systematic mm. oppression and far worse devastation than we often see here in the States. And so I think in one sense, it opens our eyes to realize that there are other sufferers in the world totally. and that God wants to do something in their lives yeah. too. And it gives us a sense of compassion, I think. That's so good. Like the reminder that our world is not the world, right? right? Yeah. Like it expands our vision, which is ultimately, I think that's a lot of our goal for the show yeah. as pastors that like you, you may feel like, man, this thing's crushing in on me, but remember you're not alone. That okay. there, there are people that see there's a God who sees you and knows you yeah. and doesn't, isn't just okay with your lament, but invites it. Yeah. And Aubrey, I'm so grateful for your Thank voice, you so for your much. perspective. Thanks, Thank you for joining. This has been Aubrey Sampson, who wrote the book, The Louder Song, Listening for Hope in the Midst of Lament. You can find out more at AubreySampson.com or on Twitter at AubSamp. Uh, and Aubrey, uh, please come back sometime. Oh, yeah. Thanks so, so much for having opening me. Guys. Oh, my gosh. It's Thank been our pleasure. You. It's been our pleasure. Well, coming up next, as we like to do, as we land the plane, we've been talking about a lot of heavy topics. We're just going to unpack some craziness we found on the internet because we know that if if it's on the internet, it must be true. So uh, <laughs> let's have a little fun as we wrap up the show here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, friends. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the mess and the gray and the tense, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, sometimes stuff that doesn't have answers at all. That, that's our hope is to create a space for dialogue, for conversation, for people to disagree for people to shrug their shoulders and say, ultimately, I don't know. For yep. people, hopefully, at times, to change their minds, to say that's a good point. Like That, that for us, is the, this would be an ongoing conversation uh, as part of our hope and dream. And you, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. Plus, the show is podcasted, so on whatever platform you listen to podcasts, you can find us there. And uh, I just got to say, uh, Aubrey Sampson is incredible. That was fun. That what, was great. What a great interview. Her, her book, if you uh, if you missed, is called The Louder Song, Listening for Hope in the Midst of Lament. And uh, I cannot encourage you enough to pick up that book. I think lament and diving into grief and pain is something that, as she mentioned, 
as a culture, we just don't do a good job of. No. And I think this book is is going to be a prolific resource. Let's have her back. Yeah, no kidding. I would love I would love to have her back. Well, as we say every day, we like to kind of land the plane a little bit here just with some lighthearted insanity that we found online. Lament to lighthearted. Here Lament to lighthearted. That should be what <laughs> the segment's called. Or the name of the show altogether. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, and per usual, the internet does not disappoint. There's always insanity to be found. So, Brian, why don't you kick I us off? I have a great one. I'm ready. So, this is, do you ever play fantasy football? Uh, yeah, but I'm terrible at it. So one of the big things, they did something on SportsCenter about this, and I'm telling you this as background to the story. A lot of fantasy football leagues, they don't play for money or just like a trophy. The loser has to get humiliated. So oh, I remember really? watching an entire segment on SportsCenter about the various leagues where guys had to get tattoos. Everyone else got to pick the tattoo. Real tattoos? For, <laughs> real tattoos. <laughs> for the last place, like the office episode, right, where Andy gets that? And, uh, <laughs> or they got to do X. Well, that's what this story is. So... It starts like this. A man in Arlington, Texas, who came in last in his fantasy football league, had to do a weird punishment. And here's what it is. You ready? Yep. Walk around a dog park in only a golden Speedo covered head to toe in peanut butter. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Nope. Oh, gosh. It was his first year ever playing fantasy football. He lost. He said he had (laughs) Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell sat out the entire season. As a result, he was given the choice. He could pay $250 to the winning person or perform a humiliating stunt. He chose the stunt. (laughs) He had to stand in a Dallas dog park for 10 minutes, clad only in a gold Speedo and covered in peanut butter. And he just got inundated with dogs. But also, the people at the dog park don't know that this is going on. I just think it's a crazy person. They see a guy in a Speedo covered in peanut butter. So note to self, do better in your fantasy football league. But one of my favorite fall end things that he says at the end, he goes, I will play fantasy football again, but probably not with the same guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, the question on everyone's mind, though, is, uh, I mean, creamy or chunky? Is that, uh, I don't no, think no, it can't no. matter <laughs> one bit. All right. Here's, uh, here's one from Ohio, but it involves two men from Florida. I feel like I, Florida and Ohio just, combined. Just got to make sure I get my Florida quota, though. It says troopers seize $84,000 in cocaine. Found in Lunchable boxes. Two men from Florida were arrested on an Ohio highway after cocaine was found inside Lunchable boxes. And the the image is kind of traumatizing for me because Lunchables was like the, the desired snack as a kid. Yes. But then there's like firearms and two cases of cocaine, That's, which apparently that is not a, uh, it's not, which not a normally, feasible hiding place. It's right? not what's normally in the Lunchable. <laughs> not, yeah. We should, we should just go on the record to say that's not usually what Lunchables yes. provides. Georgia. Tractor trailer spills 40,000 pounds of broccoli on the Metro Atlanta <laughs> uh, Interstate. Have you ever been in Atlanta? It's already terrible traffic to that's begin true, with. That's true. That's true. 40,000 pounds of broccoli on the side of a Metro Atlanta freeway Monday morning won't make it ever to a dinner plate. That's good news for picky youngsters, it says, but it caused trouble for drivers. A tractor trailer overturned on the ramp from I-285 to I-75, spilling the frozen vegetables all over the interstate. The ramp was shut down for the entire night, overnight. Oh 40,000 pounds of broccoli. <laughs> you know what I heard, though? It's actually a VeggieTales stunt. <laughs> Phil Vischer's behind we, the whole thing. We need to get and, uh... Phil Vischer in here. <laughs> Phil, you've been in Atlanta. <laughs> Phil. Phil. I don't know what you're thinking to accomplish here, man. <laughs> okay, this one's from Indiana. It says her 1950s prom invite was just discovered. No. A purse containing a prom invitation, photos, and other items from 1950s uh, America will be returned to its now 82-year-old owner, after workers found it while demolishing part of an Indiana high school, Martha Everett 
lost the black stitch purse more than six decades ago. <laughs> Workers found it in January behind the science classroom cabinets in the old Jefferson High School where Everett was a senior in 1955. That's like just a feel good. Can you imagine that's wild. 50 years later finding stuff that you had when you were in high school? No, that's crazy. Like I get amped even if I found a 20 in an old jacket <laughs> from last year. <laughs> five. Yeah. yeah, right. Five decades. Man, 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 man. New York. Man discovers 30-year-old Apple computer that's still in working order. Wow. A New York professor has Gen Xers reminiscing about their childhood after he posted images of his decades-old Apple computer on Twitter. The professor dusted off the old computer that had been sitting in his parents' attic for decades, and to his surprise, it still turned on. He put in <laughs> an old game disc's disc, asks if I want to restore a save game, and finds one. It must be 30 years old. And he said... I'm 10 years old again. The crazy thing here is that uh, it needed floppy disks. If I found those, I would stare at those again. Like, if you gave those to my kids right now, they would have no ability to explain what those are. Oh, I, I just saw a video last week of uh, – it was some some YouTube video, and they were they had an actual floppy disk. They were showing high schoolers asking, what is this? And uh, most of them had no idea, and a small percentage of them said, oh, that's the save icon. They had no idea there was an actual disc. Really? Because that's think about that's, that's, that, that's still the yeah. icon on a Word doc. They they, they they recognize that as say, but they had no idea what it actually was. He said that his kid, his nine year old kid, exclaimed, "That's a computer!" and then pointed at the floppy disks, just like we're asking, and asked, "What are those?" <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> that's funny. I feel I feel old. All right, here's one. Uh, it says hiker rescued after getting stuck in quicksand for hours, <laughs> which, I, I mean, I want to laugh at, but that also sounds pretty terrifying. But I'm thinking about a, a John Mulaney bit where he says, uh, hey, I'm a, I'm a 35-year-old man, and quicksand isn't nearly as big a deal as I thought it was going to be when I was a kid. <laughs> like, based on cartoons, my, my biggest fear should have been quicksand and sticks of dynamite <laughs> along with anvils that fall out of the sky. And He's, running off a cliff and staying there for a moment and then falling. Right, right. He's like, you never hear somebody like, hey, you should take uh, take 90 because 95's got some quicksand on That's it. Really you never funny. hear anybody talking about quicksand. All right, this is my last one because right. I want to end with a feel-good. I got a feel-good out of Virginia. Are you All ready? Right. Yep. Virginia man surprises his wife for Valentine's Day with a $1 million winning lotto ticket. Wow. Terry Mudd purchased the ticket after forgetting to pick up something from the grocery shopping list, which he said is a regular occurrence. Sure. And he scratched it off to find out he'd won the game's $1 million prize. He decided to surprise his wife with the gift as a Valentine's present, but gave it to her earlier in an envelope that read Terry and Madonna. His wife's name is Madonna, which is awesome. His (laughs) retirement after they got into an argument about their finances. (laughs) They took... That's awesome. So for Valentine's Day, he said they, they got in an argument about finances, and then he handed her a $1 million lotto ticket. My word. Okay, my last one's going to be not only a feel-good, but also a lottery story. Out of my home state, Michigan, Whoop. says Michigan woman wins three Kino jackpots in the same day. That's <laughs> a Michigan awesome. woman is $255,000 richer after winning three Michigan lottery Kino jackpots on the same day. She's got some... There's something going on. She's clairvoyant of some. You think so? Like, we need to hang out with this. Let's get her on the show. (laughs) Tell me the lottery numbers now. (laughs) Get her on the show. No kidding. No kidding. Well, man, today has been both heavy but also a lot of fun. I hope that you feel encouraged or challenged. We've had a blast being with you. We hope that you'll join us tomorrow here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.